Well, hello. It's good to see you. Uh, it's been about four weeks since I've been in the pulpit. I was reminded of that uh, when someone in the last service threatened to give me a welcome bag. Uh, I knew well, it might have been a while. <laughs> Uh, so it's good to be back, and that means I probably should go ahead and introduce myself. I'm Kenny White. I get to be the campus pastor here at Shakopee, and uh, Matt Clausen is the campus pastor over in Prior Lake, and together we get to co-pastor at Friendship. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I really, really enjoy it. I'm encouraged, uh, but don't tell Matt I said that. Okay. We are going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I, I want to remind us where we've been. We've been doing a series called uh, God Wrote a Book. Uh, Rick Allen started this series by using apologetics. How do we defend our faith? Why do we believe what we believe? And he walked through systematically some, uh, some claims that, that uh, our faith makes and how you could prove those claims. I would encourage you, by the way, if you have some friends who maybe go to another church or uh, know of some people who are in some faith-based programs or some people who are really struggling with the claims of Christianity, can I trust it or not, I would encourage you to reach out to Rick Allen. You can do that directly if you got one of his brochures a few weeks ago. That would be one way to reach him. You can also contact the church office and we can help you get connected. I was told he especially loves phone calls around 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. So uh, feel free to give him a call. Additionally, the series continued with Pastor Matt last week. He addressed uh, how do we meet with God uh, through the Bible. And he talked about, well, we read it. We should be attentive to it. We read it for relationship. In other words, these are, these are God's words. So we're reading God's words uh, in the context that they were given, but then also by principle, how they relate to us. And so we want to understand the meaning of God's word, and then we rightly want to apply it to our lives. And so today we're going to take another step and respond to this. What does God's word do for me? And I know that that sounds selfish, but it's, it's really for everybody. What does God's word do for me? And, and that's a great question. Let me cut to the chase. Uh, God's word brings to us salvation. God's word does not, uh, it, it is not, I'm not saved because of the Bible, but rather the Bible reveals Jesus and his work that in faith I can be saved. Salvation is revealed in the scripture. Paul uses that term three different ways, by the way. He used it as a, as a past tense. I, I, I was saved. 2 Timothy 1.9. He used it as a, in the present tense. I, I am saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Uh, he uses it in the future sense in Romans 5, 9, and 10. I will be saved. So isn't it great that God has done this work through his son Jesus at the cross where he was willing to give his life that we could have life, that he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave, gives life to anybody who would call on him, that he is in the work, he is saving us. We, we are saved, but he is saving us that one day, ultimately, we will stand before him completely saved. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. We will know him completely and exist exactly how he intended. That will be a beautiful day. And we can celebrate God's plan, but it's revealed to us in his word. 
We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to raise your hand. One of our team will bring a Bible to you where you're at. If you don't have a Bible at all, not just here, but even in your home, then let this be a gift. We would love to gift you with the scriptures. We want to make sure that everyone has access to the word of God, because we know that, uh, that in having access to the word of God, you have access uh, to the opportunity to respond in faith to Christ. So the word of God is a big deal. Um, if you do have a Bible at home, but you need one of our church Bibles today, that's great. We would just ask that you would put it back at the end of the service so that we can have it available for people in the future. Thank you so much. Second Timothy chapter three, we're going to start in verse 14 in just a moment, but let me give you a little bit of background. First of all, uh, Paul is the author, and this is the end of his ministry. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, uh, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He identifies that he's fought the good fight, that uh, his race is just about to completion. It's an identifier that Paul knows the trajectory of his life and the short-term reality that he's ultimately going to give his life for Christ. In the midst of that place where Paul is at that time, he makes a decision, and the decision is to write a letter to his disciple, Timothy. Timothy is a young man who grew up in a mixed home. His grandmother and mother were Jewish. It appears his father was Greek. <clears throat> Timothy grows up in a community where there are uh, a pantheon of different religious identities, religions, deity, and they, uh, they are tempting all from different perspectives. And I'll, I'll just, I'll brush the top of that. So first of all, in the Roman Empire, there were legal religions. Judaism was one of those legal religions. And then there were a variety of others. During this time, there is persecution starting to come upon the church, in part because suddenly the synagogue has said, Christianity is not a denomination of Judaism. It's its own thing, and they're not a part of us. And so they've sent them out of the synagogue. In the midst of sending them out of the synagogue, the Roman Empire has to adjust and say, well, if you're not a part of Judaism, then you're not a part of an acceptable religion. Therefore, the term they used was atheist. Therefore, you are atheist. You don't really believe in a God or at least an approved God. <laughs> well, with that comes persecution because a part of what the Roman Empire was telling their people is that you actually need to worship the way we call you to worship. Anything outside of that is going to have persecution associated with it, and the church is starting to be persecuted in some significant ways, both by the empire and then by their families who are not receiving them in the synagogue anymore, which is the center for life. Paul is writing Timothy, this young man, a letter, and he's telling him, you stay strong. Stick with it. Don't give up. Continue on, persevere. And in so doing that, he is calling him to a faith and obedience, not to Paul, but to the word of God. So what we're going to do in our time together is we're going to break this section down and look at some significant, specific units of thought. Those thoughts are going to connect with this idea of why should Timothy continue 
in his faith. And then we're going to ask ourselves two questions. Those two questions are going to lead us to some action steps that we'll walk through uh, together today. And so uh, as you're turning there to 2 Timothy, let's take a moment and pray. Jesus, we love you and we need you. We thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would be exalted. And Lord, as we look at this great relationship that Paul had with Timothy, in some ways we see our own lives there. The call that you have given us to be obedient to you, to firmly believe. Lord, the reminder that it's not just who gave us this, but it's also the truth and the reality of your word. So help us, O oh Lord. Help us to be obedient to your word. Help us to follow your word. Help us to love your word appropriately as it relates to faith in Jesus Christ and salvation. Salvation that has occurred. Salvation that is occurring. And salvation that will one day be fulfilled ultimately in your presence. We love you, Lord. And we trust you for this. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. Amen. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. Up to this point in verses 10 through 13, Paul has made a point to, tell, to remind Timothy of their relationship. He said this, uh, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my life, uh, my life, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And then he goes on to talk about how, how they have had fellowship in these variety of places. And then because those things are true, he's going to go into verse 14 where we pick it up. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to underline that term continue, maybe put it in brackets. That is a key term in this passage. It perhaps insinuates that Timothy is, uh, he's in a tough spot like we all are. Uh, there is perhaps even a temptation to walk away from the faith. And if we're honest for all of us, there are those moments in time where boy, it would just be easier to give in than to stand firm. For Timothy, there is the persecution of the Roman Empire and the pushing away of, uh, uh, of his family and friends in the synagogue. For us today, we may recognize that our culture may have a series of politically correct things that they're telling us, demanding from us to embrace or else they'll, they will cancel us. And so we may look at this and connect with Timothy in that respect and hear those words, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Don't stop. Keep it up. This is the first thought. And then he's going to explain why that is necessary. So let's continue on. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Let's just pause there. It seems to be connected to those previous verses where Paul has said, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. Uh, it seems to be connected to that. So he's saying this, that I have shared my faith with you. You have seen it lived out. You know where this has come from. And this wasn't uh, a flash in the pan. Uh, this wasn't some sort of gimmick. 
This wasn't some sort of pyramid scheme. You know where it came from. And then he connects it. He connects it to Timothy's life in a very specific way when he says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. How from childhood. Well, from 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, around verse 9, we see that Paul mentions that Timothy had learned about the faith through his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, that they had shared these sacred writings as it's written. This passage is going to do something called uh, parallelism. There's going to be this uh, parallel thought that you'll see when he starts talking about sacred writings. He's going to use a format that is spelled out in parallel form with all scripture starting in verse 16. So watch how this spells out. Uh, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, continue in your faith. Why should you? Because you know where you've gotten it from. It's legit. And, and then he goes on to say, not, not just that, but there are these sacred writings that have been given to you. These sacred writings are given to you so that you can be wise. You can know the salvation and that the salvation is in Jesus Christ, who's in Christ Jesus. This faith is found in Christ Jesus. He's going to use kind of a similar format in this next section. Starting in verse 16, if you can... Uh, uh, think about the sacred writings connected with all scriptures. Now, before I go on to this next verse, I want to ask you a question. When Paul says all scriptures, what does he mean? When he says sacred writings, what does he mean? Because uh, up to this point, uh, life is being lived out. We don't have the New Testament in in its completion, though there are some writings that are starting to come forward in the churches, and they're starting to say, no, this This is definitely God's word. It's not completed yet. Paul is talking about what we would refer to as the Old Testament here. That the Old Testament has the ability to lead Timothy to a place of faith in Christ Jesus. And we're going to talk about how that is in just a few moments. All scripture is breathed out by God. Like this is coming from God. This is his word. It is coming from him. This isn't man-made. It's not man-generated. I know sometimes people will say, well, it's just a bunch of guys who wrote it. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, enabled by the Holy Spirit, it's written down as God wanted it. And it's profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's pause there because we have some phrases that we have to ask. First of all, are, are they equal phrases? In other words, do these phrases all mean the same thing? They have the same amount of priority in our thought and attention. Or is there a big idea, a general concept that is then followed by a specific context? I would suggest that it's the latter rather than the former in this setting. Uh, let, let, let's look at that. So, and profitable for teaching. So, uh, this, is, uh, this is important because throughout the scriptures, we see some teachings that surface. These 
teachings lead us to a faith in Christ for salvation in him. Overall, this teaching. But when we don't follow the teaching, what needs to happen? Reproof, right? Like, that is wrong. We need to know that that is wrong. We need to be corrected. This is right. And then we need to be trained. How do I use these principles in real life in such a way uh, that honors God and fulfills what God's teaching is from his word? So the broad or big idea here is teaching, and then it moves to reproof, correction, and training. When uh, I, early on in ministry, there was a pastor who was my mentor. Uh, his name is Harvey Seidel. Harvey Seidel is a great guy. He is an old rancher, leathery guy, spends time outside. He, he looks like, you know, kind of like the Marlboro man, like, you know, just leathery, like he could take a match and just light it right off his face. Just loving, funny, serious, and scary, all in one package. And uh, early on in ministry, he, he would use this as he taught uh, young pastors. And I was one of those young pastors. And one of the things he did is he took me on a hospital visit. And it, it worked out like this. He said, uh, hey, we're going on a hospital visit. What that means is, I don't care what you had planned. We are going on a hospital. Like, clear your calendar because we're going to the hospital. Got it. Got it, pastor. So we went to the hospital and I watched him uh, as he entered into the room and just uh, kindly, graciously inserted his presence in a loving way. I watched him ask some questions of the person that was at the hospital that day who was uh, at the last stage of their life with cancer. And I watched how he cared for that person. Uh, I watched him gently and kindly put his hand on her shoulder as he shared some scripture with her and prayed for her. And then how he uh, calmly and graciously walked out. And a few days later, he said, hey, we're going to the hospital, and you're doing it now, and I'm watching you. And we went to the hospital, and I'll just say I didn't do things quite in that order and the way that he thought I should have. And so there was some reproofing that took place. There was some correction, and there was some training. And I want you to know that that was good. The scriptures do that for us, and we see it in uh, very clear detail throughout the scriptures, how we both uh, learn the teachings, how we are reproofed, and we all need it, how we are corrected, and we all need it, and how we're trained. Now I'm going to add the next part, trained in righteousness. Trained in righteousness is a, a great concept and, uh, uh, which has with it this thought or idea of benevolence. So it would, it would turn out like this. People would give uh, of themselves, sometimes sacrificially, to some sort of offering. This offering then would be used to help people who had a need. Now, we think about needs a little bit differently than they thought about needs. Their needs were life and death kind of needs. Like, if I don't eat, I starve. If I don't get out of the elements, I'm going to die. Those kind of needs. And so this offering that they gave, sometimes sacrificially, some from the overflow of their heart, but this offering would go to help these sorts of people who didn't have the ability in and of themselves. 
And that's the parallel here with the term salvation in the verse before. We see this, that the scriptures help us to understand this salvation, this righteousness that God, from the overflow love of who he is, has offered something to people who couldn't have life without it, who were going to die without this offering that God has given. This offering that he has given is himself in the form of Jesus the Christ, willing to give his life on the cross, that all who would call on him would be saved. We see this parallelism in this passage that connects us. It goes on to say that the man of God may be complete, or uh, another way of saying this is is mature. Uh, Jesus uses this term in Luke 6.40. I'm sorry, he uses a different word, but the same idea in Luke 6.40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So there's that idea of fully trained, equipped for every good work, or adequate is another way. Uh, uh, Adequate, you you have everything you need uh, because of the word of God. Every good work, he may be referring to something he said earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, he said this, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 21, that as, as we go before the Lord, as we let the Lord do a work within us, as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's First uh, John 1, 9. And that as we go to that place and offer ourselves to God, that God will use us. And the way that God uses us is for every good work. Every work that is relationally connected to him. Every, every work that satisfies his plan. Every good work. Uh, and so we see that laid out in this passage. Timothy, why should you continue in your faith? Because you know who told it to you. You know where you've received it. And it's legitimate. Not just that, but these sacred writings, this Uh, All scripture, not just part of them, but all of them are offered for you so that you will be wise for salvation. They will help train you that you would be reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness that you may be complete, that Timothy stay faithful so that you will be equipped for every good work that God has planned for you. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and move to a couple of questions. The first question, what do we know about the word? And then the, follow, the follow-up question is kind of the so what? what? What does that have to do with me? How does the answer to that question affect us? Well, let's just jump in. Uh, what do we know about the word? All scripture, the sacred writings, the, the Bible. What do we know based on this passage? Now, I'm just going to let you know this ahead of time. That there's going to be some uh, cross-pollination. In other words, some things we know about the word are also things that will affect us. We're going to try to separate those a little bit, uh, but it's going to get a little, those lines will be a little bit blurred. So hang in there with me. First, what do we know? Well, we know it's the source of foundational knowledge and belief. Uh, Verse 14, we recognize that with uh, Timothy, he is challenged uh, to stay firm in what he has believed. 
that this which he has learned from a child is foundational in his understanding for living out a life that pleases God. In other words, the scriptures are important for life. And so we would have to ask ourselves, where are we getting our information? Where is it coming from? For Paul, the reminder to Timothy is that it needs to come from the scriptures. Continuing on, it leads to wisdom and salvation through faith in Christ. It leads to wisdom and salvation. Uh, I, I, I don't know that this is the best definition of wisdom, uh, but it is a definition of wisdom, and I do appreciate it. So the, the person who shared this, they said this, uh, knowledge is experience applied. Like, okay, I experienced this. I understand it. I know it. I'm applying it. Wisdom is applying someone else's knowledge. So in other words, I don't have to go to prison to know. I don't think I want to go to prison. Uh, I don't have to experience that to know that that is not something I would want to do. In other words, we are looking at the examples of others and drawing some conclusions, and scriptures help us to do that. We can look at the example of others and see how God uniquely and magnificently saved people and led them to places of salvation. See, it is divinely inspired. It is divinely inspired. So, uh, uh, on our Facebook um, page, specifically, we, we have a Facebook page called uh, Friendship Community Page. On the Friendship Community page, I gave a, uh, a link there. And on that link, my, my intention was for us to be able to flesh this out. We don't have time today in service to flesh this out at the same level. Uh, but you can go to the link uh, that's posted on our Facebook page and read the article. And Norman Geisler does just an incredible job of saying, if something were from God, how would we know? If there is a writing that is divine, how would we know that it is divine writing? And he systematically breaks down the thought and then reveals how the scriptures uniquely and specifically answer those questions. It's fascinating read. It, it'll take you 10 minutes or less. Even if you're a slow reader like me, uh, I would strongly encourage you to go there. D, it is profitable for various purposes. It's profitable for various purposes specifically for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's profitable to us. And it equips believers for every good work. It equips believers for every good work. We know based on the scriptures, hey, this is God's plan. Uh, don't murder. Okay, that's good. I shouldn't do that. But that's, that's a good work. Some days, just put that in the wind category, friends, okay? Like, hey, we didn't kill anybody today. Bad away. Self-inflicted, pat on the back. Uh, there are others. God's word reveals uh, his plan and opens up opportunities for every good work. What do we know about the word of God? Uh, we know these things. And how does that apply to us? How does the answer to that question affect us? What's the so what? Well, it's the foundation for faith. It's the foundation for faith. Now, I, I, I want to pause for just a second and 
recognize something. I made a comment earlier, and the comment earlier was this, that the sacred writings that Paul was talking about, the all scripture that he seems to be talking about would be what we would call the Old Testament. So how does the Old Testament lead us to a faith in Jesus Christ? What I'm going to do is share some scriptures, some Old Testament and New Testament scriptures. You can write those down. They're not going to appear up on the screen this morning. You can write them down, go back and look at them. I will give the address, share the verse, give the address again uh, if you're taking notes. But let me just walk through them, how they would, how even the Old Testament, without explicitly saying Jesus leads us uh, to Christ, helps us with a foundation for faith. And by the way, why I would encourage us to not just read the Old Testament, to also read the New Testament. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Well, I wonder if Ecclesiastes 7.20 was what Paul had in mind in Romans 3.23 when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 gives us that principle and spells it out. Uh, Romans 3.23 confirms that, that that is true. So we recognize from the scriptures, we've all sinned. It's laying a foundation. I've sinned. You've sinned. We're not perfect. Additionally, Deuteronomy 24.16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So, as a point of clarity, I'm not responsible for the sins of my father or fathers. I'm also not responsible for the sins of my children. And they are not responsible for mine. What the scripture points to is I am responsible for my sins. I will be accountable before a holy God for what I have done. So, wonder if that's what Paul had in mind in Romans 6.23 when he said the wages of sin is death. He goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Deuteronomy 24.16, we're all accountable for our sins. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Which leads us to Leviticus. Okay, so uh, if all of us have sinned and all of us are accountable for that sin, then what? Well, Leviticus 17.11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to... I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. A constant reminder for the children of Israel that our sins come at a cost, and that that cost is going to cost the, the perfect, the, uh, the blood of an animal, an animal that we have raised or at least have, have paid for in significant ways. And we're reminded ritualistically that, that my sin is death. And it's going to cost a life to pay for my sin. Perhaps that's what Paul had in mind in Romans 5.8 when he says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, he gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for us. Nearly 250 Old Testament prophecies about the coming Christ. Isaiah 53.5 is one of them. It says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I wonder 
If, if Paul used that when he was talking to Timothy about the Savior Jesus. I wonder if he quoted that passage to Timothy when he was reading. I wonder if the sons of Simeon, one, of at, least, one at least, was a participant in the church at Rome, told the story about their dad who picked up a cross for the Savior of the world and talked about Isaiah 53, 5. Perhaps that's what Paul had in mind in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 when he said, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. There is a work of the Savior that has been done in real time, historically, and we can, in faith, we can trust that that is true and trust God as the Savior uh, uh, over sin and death. Or maybe it's Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Maybe this is what Paul was thinking in Romans 10, 9 and 10 when he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified just as if you hadn't sinned. And with the mouth one confesses and, in, and is saved. There is the reality that the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And I want to say this, that every chapter leads us to Jesus in the Old Testament and every chapter in the New Testament points us at Jesus as the Savior, the hero of humankind, the giver of salvation, the lover of our souls. It's foundational. The Word of God is foundational and, and we need to marinate in it. Two, is the source of wisdom and salvation, as we've already identified. We don't have to experience it. We don't have to experience death to know that it's bad. We don't have to just walk in a separation from God to go, oh, I, I guess it would be better to walk with God. But rather, we can learn from the experience of others as informs us, as the scriptures have inform, has informed us. Divine authority and trustworthiness. We recognize that the scripture is indeed of God. If you're still wondering with that, I want to encourage you to go back uh, two weeks ago to uh, Rick Allen's message uh, here in Shakopee where he addressed the claims and uh, the obvious conclusion that this is the word of God. It's... Uh, uh, it affects us by transformation and growth. As we follow these teachings, empowered by the Holy Spirit, there is a transformation. We can't remain the same. Through time, we should look more and more like Christ as he transforms us. And D, empowerment for service. Empowerment for service. We recognize uh, oftentimes the claims that we get to love one another as an example in Scripture. You start to think, oh, even this person? Yeah. Even that person I work with? Yeah. Uh, even my neighbor? Yeah. Even the neighbor with that dog that wakes me up early in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, I'm supposed to love him. Absolutely. I'm supposed to love him. But when we look at it in, uh, in context of the scriptures, we see that this, this God who came in the flesh, who went to the cross, and we go, you know what? Love my neighbor whose dog barks really loud and wakes me up early. It's easy compared to what our Savior did. 
Who can we not love based on what our Savior did? So these claims, these calls uh, uh, that we have in Scripture, we can be empowered because of the context of the Scripture that leads us to salvation. So let's talk about some action steps. By the way, these action steps, they're going to be a little bit uh, longer. If you have your phones, I would encourage you to take a picture of it. If you, uh, or if you can go to our app and look up the notes and walk through those action steps that way as well. Uh, but there are three. And I, one of the things I would ask of you now is if you would go ahead and get out your phones and open to your calendar. Go ahead and get out your phone and open to your calendar. Or if you have a piece of paper, uh, jot this off to the side. Here's the first action step. Make a commitment to prioritize daily Bible reading and study. Okay, so what I'm saying is uh, find a time in your day where you can set aside for Bible reading and study. It, it may be difficult. You might have to break it up into chunks. You might have to listen to it on the way to work and study it a little bit later. Maybe you're uh, an early morning person, even though you're not a farmer. You just like mornings for whatever reason. God bless you. Uh, you like to get up and study the scriptures. Great. That, that's a good time to do it. Or maybe you're a late night person. You're like, oh man, 10 o'clock, I'm getting my second wind. I'm ready to go. 10 o'clock is when I am most focused and clear-minded. Cool, good for you. Uh, study the word then. Prioritize it. Put it in your calendar. Let me suggest to you, if, if you don't purposefully do this, it's not going to happen. It will only accidentally happen. Purposefully put a time in your day where you can study the Word of God. Set aside a specific time each day to immerse yourself in God's Word, seeking to understand His character, His plan of salvation through Jesus Christ as you study, meditate on key verses that anchor your faith and bring assurance of God's love and promises. Uh, a great challenge for us to daily engage in. Not just that. Seek God's wisdom through His Word regularly. Meditate and memorize a passage that speaks of salvation through faith in Christ. I, I just shared one with you earlier, uh, Romans 6.23. What a great place to start. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, find a passage of scripture, memorize it so that it's an anchor in your faith. Regularly, you're, you're going to have to go back there. Satan's going to uh, shout out to you. The, the demonic forces are going to shout out to you, did God really say that? Do you really believe that? Are you sure that's really true? And for you to be able to have that in your arsenal of scripture that you've memorized, to go back to it and go, no, I'm standing on God's word and this is what it says. Three, embrace the practical use of scripture for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This, again, is going to require some purposeful dedication. Commit to applying God's word in your daily decisions and interactions. Wherever faced with a challenging situation, pause and ask yourself, what does God's word say about that? So here's what we're doing. Uh, it may be with a family member. It may be with a friend. It may be with a coworker. It may, I mean, it could be a lot of different things. But we always, we often, rather, come to these intersections in life where it's faith or fear. What am I going to do? Wouldn't it be good if instead of going, well, practically what's going to work? Well, what's easiest to do in this place? 
What if we said, well, what, what does God's word have to say about this? At least in principle, what does he have to say about it? And then commit ourselves to answering that question as it relates to God's word. Because the reality is, friends, there's nothing new under the sun. And God's word, at least by principle, will address it. We are uh, confident that God's word leads us to salvation. Recognizing that Jesus has done the work. And though we have received him as our savior and we are saved, he is also doing a work within us that we, we are recognizing our daily need for him as he saves us moment by moment. And one day, ultimately, we will be saved. And we see that spelled out throughout the scriptures and understood through a great letter, the last letter that Paul wrote to his disciple, Timothy. I hope your hearts are encouraged and challenged as we follow him together and move into a time of communion. Uh, the worship team's going to come out, and as they come out now, I, I want to encourage us to prepare our hearts. A few things that happen at Friendship Church. One, you don't have to be a member of Friendship Church to participate in communion. We do ask that you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is a way that we uh, don't make a mockery of the situation. It's a surrendering of who God is and the recognition that we need salvation. And it's not generated from us or from our church, but from God himself. And so we ask that you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We would also lean into 1 Corinthians 11 and ask you to examine your heart. Is there any unconfessed sin? If there is, confess it to the Lord. Lord, in these ways, I have missed the mark and not followed you. I confess that. I'm repenting of that. That means turn away, and I'm choosing to follow you. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, I want to follow you in all things. At Friendship Church, uh, uh, at, at the end of that time where you're examining your heart, you are welcome to walk towards uh, the station that's nearest you. We ask that you would go to the carpeted areas and around to the station nearest you, get both the, the bread and the cup and return to your seat in the outer area. And then we're going to sing a song together. And at the end of that time, uh, we'll participate in communion together. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you that indeed you are good. We thank you for your word, the power of your word, that we can meet with you in your word and that your word offers us eternal life, salvation. Thank you, Lord. We thank you. Lord, we would also ask that in this time of communion that we would remember what you have done, the life that you were willing to give that we could be made right with you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.